Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's Friday, June 30th, 2023, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In another 6-3 decision along conservative and liberal lines, the Supreme Court has thrown out President Biden's student debt relief program. I read this in the New York Times coverage. Speaking afterward, he didn't chastise the court, but he did lay out in contrast who would benefit from his debt relief program to who benefited from the PPP program. I was trying to provide students with ten to twenty thousand, ten to twenty thousand dollars in relief. By comparison, the average amount forgiven in the PPP, the pandemic loan program, average amount forgiven was seventy thousand dollars. Now, a kid making sixty thousand bucks, trying to pay back his bills, asking for ten thousand dollars in relief. Come on, the hypocrisy is stunning. Biden didn't even mention that up to 20% of PPP loans have recently been found to have been fraudulent. Now, a cynic, a cruel cynic, not me, might have thought of the previous ruling, which tossed out affirmative action in higher education, paired it with the student debt relief ruling and said, well, at least we're going to save some of society's most vulnerable people from having to take on student debt. Congrats. You got into the Ivy League. Here's the bill. That's all off the table. It all works out. But no. I wouldn't say that, I wouldn't think it, because you know why? The truth is that the affirmative action program, programs, they don't really touch the vast majority of Americans of any race, but the cost of college absolutely does. However, forgiving debt by executive fiat and going around Congress is exactly why the Supreme Court exists. For the record, I was with the three liberals in the 303 bake shop case. I just think it's an excuse now to discriminate against gay people. I, however, am lightly for the conservative majority in the Harvard case. I do not think it's as monumental as some are making it out to be. And with student debt, I say, get more Democrats elected. Pass the bill. Now, they always say pass the bill about anything where the Supreme Court throws out an executive branch initiative. And sometimes it's really unrealistic. You know, regulations regarding the EPA. Congress is not going to be able to get into every waterway and write every regulation. It will not be something you can rally your constituents around. Special interests are certainly going to get in there, and it just takes too much time. But on something like student debt, this is something that Congress really could pass if there were the votes to pass it. I say, I mean, everyone understands it. We know what the contours of the discussion are. Have it. Vote on it. But be able to win that vote. If you want to use the public treasury to benefit a small number of people, you should maybe need the buy-in of the majority of the people. That would be, I don't know, maybe not more equitable or fair in an abstract sense, but it would be more democratic. In general, I do not mind when the Supreme Court insists on thrusting a little more democracy upon us. I think this was such a case. On the show today, 
It's an N twin TIG, including a lobstar for Mike's to watch out for. But first, Ann Applebaum is a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who has chronicled Eastern Europe's unstable relationship with communism, democracy, and Vladimir Putin. She's based in Poland, and we wanted to get her perspective on recent spasms in the Ukraine war. Ann Applebaum, up next. And Applebaum is one of the best writers and thinkers on all issues Europe. She has won the Pulitzer Prize for her book, Gulag, A History. And you know, if you line up the names of her books, they kind of tell a story. You would just hope the story would turn out better than her most recent. Here we go. Gulag, Iron Curtain, Red Famine. So it's a chronicle of deprivations of Russia and the Soviet Union, but it all leads up to Twilight of Democracy. That was her 2020 work. I don't know. Maybe there'll be a reversal based on what we've been seeing in Ukraine. And Applebaum is also a staff writer for The Atlantic. She joins me again. Thanks for coming on, Anne. Uh, Thank you for having me. Sorry it ends with Twilight of Democracy, but maybe it doesn't. I mean, maybe it's a Twilight of Autocracy, at least in this one case. Um, we can we can hope. I mean, one of the one of the points I made at the end of Twilight of Democracy is that there is no such thing as historical inevitability. So there is no reason why democracy has to end or autocracy has to triumph. Although, n- not you know, the opposite also true. You know, yes. autocracy can might triumph. It just right. depends what what people do. You know, your job is to chronicle what's happened, not be a seer. And Twilight of Democracy isn't a negative book. It ends on a more positive note. But you're just noting what's going on in the world. And so I wanted to start in a weird area because you're an expert and. Tell, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a citizen of Poland. I've been very fascinated by the Polish part in all of this. Is Poland simultaneously pro-NATO without being very Western aligned? Um, Poland is very much pro-NATO, um, mostly because the vast majority of people in the country belonging to all political parties and with a wide range of political opinions believe that their security is served by NATO and believe that if the Russians were ever to occupy Ukraine, that they would be the next target. Um, When Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, there was a kind of national shudder here. I'm actually in Warsaw right now. Um, And and people looked at what happened and it reminded them of September 1939, when Poland was invaded first by Germany and then by the Soviet Union. And there was a kind of national rush to help. I mean, people drove their cars to the border to pick up refugees and take them home that very day. Um, And almost everybody I know, including us, had refugees living at their house at one point or another. Um, And so it was really a national um, feeling rather than a rather than a project of one particular government or another. Um, And that has happened simultaneously as we we have in Poland right now a increasingly extreme party, which has more than just autocratic tendencies. It's um, it has it uses a combination of state media, which it has taken over and turned into a very um, extremist um, um, 
radical version of media, kind of pro-party media, actually much more radical in some ways than the old Communist Party media ever was, which I do remember. Um, at this, they use the prosecutors, they use the police, they use um, all kinds of tactics to to scare and embarrass and divide the political opposition. And there are fears that it will be worse. Um, there's an election here in October, and you know if you if you if you spend time uh, in you know with anybody from the Polish opposition, you know in of an evening, if you have a group of people sitting around a table, they will start speculating about what exactly the ruling party is going to do to make sure they don't lose the next election. Right, and, right. And right now, the leader of the opposition, Donald Tr Tusk, is on trial for, in, on trumped-up charges, just one of the tactics that they use. Yeah, he's a, he's not on trial yet, actually. They, right. they passed a law that could put him on trial. I mean, it's actually so absurd. It's so it's a sort of Damocles threat. It's a, it's a sort of Damocles. It, it actually now looks like it might not happen because they've been dithering about they would have to create a special commission, a kind of McCarthyite special committee, and then they would have to have hearings. And it's not actually clear right now that they're really going to do it. But that was their that certainly was their idea. So but, the, but my questions about Poland are if you look at their status uh, as regards the war, they're at the forefront. They're literally at almost at the front. I mean, they share this large border with Ukraine. But every time the United States argues for sending any sort of missile system, the Poles are saying, we'll send it first. You could go through us. They have been the most aggressive for the reasons you laid out. They fear Putin the most. However, we have said, we have been told, I think a lot of thinkers think, NATO, if not equals, correlates to democracy, correlates to liberal values. And so now we're seeing Poland, which has eschewed liberal values over the last decade, very much embracing NATO. Is this just um, a one-off, an exception? I understand why, but should we stop thinking that this uh, coalition of people who are standing athwart the autocrat and Putin will oppose autocracy in other realms, their own, for so instance. It, there's a, there are some nuances to that. I mean, you're essentially right. I mean, that is what NATO, that's in the Washington Treaty. That's that's what NATO officially yeah. does. However, then, we, then, then they allowed Turkey in. And so that, well, yeah, no, I one of the founding that. members of NATO was Portugal. And at the time, Portugal was an autocracy. Um, Turkey is very close to being an autocracy. Certainly, it's not a liberal democracy. Hungary is very close to being an autocracy. Um, it's also not a liberal democracy. I mean, you don't have free elections in, in, in Hungary either. In Poland, I should say, by the way, um, there is still a big opposition. It might it could theoretically win in October. There is still some independent media, although it's very pressured. So it's not it isn't as far gone as some other members of NATO. So um, so it's so it's 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 still it's still in the Democratic camp, although we'll see what happens in the next few months. Yeah. Um, is Putin smart to portray so credibly the idea that they're an expansionist country that would sure like to take over Poland if given the chance, given that it seems that some countries would be more happy to be essentially bought off by a Russia than threatened by a Russia. So why is Putin playing this correctly as regards to Poland? Putin, he doesn't claim that there's no country of Poland like he does with Ukraine. He doesn't say that there's no such thing as Polish history. Sure, he says that the USSR was the glory days, and of course, Poland was in Russia's realm. But from a perspective of Poland, which is looking at this situation and only sees Russia as an expansionist threat, I mean, is that 
did did Putin play that right that everyone has that uh, Im- impression? So I'm not sure he's playing. Um, you know, I think he's authentic. He looks around the world and he has this idea that Russia is a sovereign country, meaning it's a big country, it can do what it wants. The other countries around Russia, um, Kazakhstan, Georgia, Ukraine, but also Poland, and don't forget the Baltic states, which are much smaller than Poland and would be much easier to run over if anybody ever wanted to do that. Um, maybe also Romania, Bulgaria, you know, these are other, other countries um, on, on Russia's borders. He looks at all of those countries as countries that were once under Russian influence and could be again. You know, so so this is a this is an authentic belief of the Russians. It's not a game. It's 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 what they it's what they feel, um, and their and their threat to, uh, to 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 Europe is one they have been stating for for a long time. I, I, uh, the Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov, um, I once heard him say, "Well, you know, the referendum on oh, no, he said the reunification of Germany. He said uh, was conducted without a referendum, so maybe it's not legal." And everybody in the room laughed. I mean, what a ridiculous thing to say. Ha, ha, ha. And I heard that and I thought, no, he, <laughs> he means that. I mean, all, everything could be unpicked. You know, we can, everything that happens in 1989 could be reversed. And we're ready. We're here and ready to reverse it as soon as you're ready, you know, to listen to our, you know, to listen to those arguments. Is Poland's aggressiveness towards Russia and desire to fight and get them arms and materiel, is that very useful for the United States? Yeah. I mean, so Poland is, it's true that Poland is the country through which most of the weapons are going, not all of them, but most of them. Uh, It's true that there are U.S. troops in Poland for the first time in history. Uh, It's true that there has been some training of Ukrainian troops in Poland, although I think more of it has taken place in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, it's true that Poland is also where has has been very welcoming to a lot of Ukrainian refugees. Although I should say also that they were very quickly absorbed into the Polish population, and they aren't uh, there aren't camps where they're refugees. They 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 work in grocery stores, <laughs> so they're um, so they're 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 not. A, I, I don't see them as a huge problem for the Polish government, at least not yet or not right now. Um, so so and all of that is absolutely because. Uh, you know, they see that it's in their national security interests for uh, Ukraine to fight back Russia and for Ukraine to win the war. And that has been extremely useful to the Biden administration, um, which also understands, I think, that there are issues in Poland with the Polish government and with Polish democracy, and in some subtle ways has made its fear about that and worries about some of those issues clear. Um, but Pol- you know, the, the, the role that Poland has made has been absolutely central to the whole war effort. Yes. I mean, the, yeah. uh, the, there, there, there's an airport in Eastern Poland in a city called Rzeszów, okay, which wasn't a very important airport before the war started. And now, you know, a friend of mine described being there and watching like C-130s, you know, these huge transport planes, like landing, you know, one after one, you know, boom, 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 you know. Oh my pr- God. Pr- prior to that, the only planes that landed there were those cheap European airlines, you know, those whiz air, you know. <laughs> the ones with the uh, the tray tables that uh, will stab you if you That's let right. them loose. Yeah. So the... The pattern with getting arms to the Ukrainians, which they absolutely need and which has turned the tide of the war, is at first they request them. Uh, the United States or 
uh, factions within the United States debate a little bit. There is a public dithering about them. Oh, will this be the weapon system that goes too far? And then they get them. Uh, it's not always easy. They don't have, they literally don't have enough materiel and guns and all the advanced weaponry being produced in Europe. The United States is doing what they can. Poland is this very necessary conduit in this process. So a couple questions about weapons and arming the Ukrainians. Is there any limit, do you think, short of nuclear, now that F-16s are being essentially given to Ukraine with some conditions, should we think that there are some weapons that will just be too far or will this pattern play itself out until the Ukrainian fighters are at least minimally satisfied on all fronts as uh, regards weapons? My guess is that eventually the Ukrainians will get everything they want. My fear is that it's going to take too long and it might be too late or it might be too late anyway for a lot of Ukrainian soldiers. Uh, had the Ukrainians had heavy weapons and tanks six months ago, for example, um, they would the Russians would not have had time to build the um, enormous defenses that they built all over southern Ukraine, occupied southern Ukraine, and the war might already be over. Uh, if the Ukrainians had airplanes now, by the way, they don't have any F-16s yet, as far as I know. There aren't any. There are right. supposedly some training programs have started, but there aren't any planes in the country. Uh, you know, if they had them already, then they would have could have air superiority over the Russians, which they don't have right now, and they would find progress um, much easier. So, uh, and I understand the logic for that is that the idea is not to provoke Russia, not to, above all, not to drag um, U.S. troops or NATO troops into the conflict. And so, there's been a, uh, you know, each stage has been carefully thought through. Um, but the effect is that the Ukrainians never have quite as much stuff as the Russians have. The more weapons we give with there being no nuclear response, the more we feel like, well, there won't be a nuclear response. But how do we know we're right? So I won't say that there is a zero chance of nuclear response and nobody would say that. But as the war has evolved and as we understand better how Putin thinks about it, it's become pretty clear that a nuclear response would make no sense for him. Um, he wouldn't win the war that way. Uh, the, you know, uh, the Ukrainians will take iodine pills and tape their windows shut <laughs> um, rather than give up. Um, there is a risk that if he used a nuclear weapon somewhere in Ukraine, you know, the winds blow to the east and it would, they would blow right into Russia. You know, these countries are not very far apart. It's hard to see how, if he used a nuclear weapon, he could then send his soldiers into that area. Um, so, you know, it's not- Which so he only cares about because they wouldn't be able to fight the next well, Exactly. Week. So technically, yeah. it's hard to see how he'd use it. And the second issue is that the United States has been very clear in public and apparently also in private that there would be, the word is catastrophic, a catastrophic response. Uh, so there is a lot of deterrence and Putin seems to be taking that seriously. And the third point is that, um, t Putin's two most important trading partners, India and China, but, and especially China, have also both publicly said several times that they're, they do not want to see this turn into a nuclear conflict. China says it almost every time it talks about the war. Um, I should say there is still, Ukrainians are very worried that he will not use a nuclear weapon, but that he will cause an accident deliberately through an attack or some other means at a nuclear power plant, which is right in the middle of the conflict zone. 
it's a it's in a place called Zaporizhia, between right between Ukrainian and Russian troops. Right now, the Russians control it. And there is some fear of an accident there. And the Ukrainians have begun training and planning for that eventuality and have said they have information that the Russians might be planning that. So that is, you know, I, I don't know if I don't know how to classify that in the list of horrible things that might happen, but it is it is certainly very close to the use of a nuclear weapon. So Putin has made so many miscalculations as it comes to as as pertains to his military capability, the wisdom of his generals, the willingness to fight, uh, the number and quality of his materiel. Why do we think that he hasn't also totally miscalculated the power structure within the Kremlin or Russia? I mean, we can't really know. This is one trait of the autocrat. You never really know how weak they are until boom, they go. But I think we assume that, but we also assumed that the Russian army really was a bit of a juggernaut and we were wrong about that. Yes, we've been wrong about a lot of things. And yes, it is very possible that Putin was wrong. Um, he, he, he seems to be very cut off from the war and from the population. Um, his, the information that he gets you know, may or may not be wrong. good. Actually, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, whose who's strange attack on occupation of the city of Rostov and drive to Moscow last weekend, um, caused so much trouble for Putin, uh, has said himself that Putin isn't getting good information. It's one of the uh, one of the one of the criticisms that he had of the of the way the war was being fought. And many others have said it too. And yes, it's very possible that he doesn't really know what's happening inside his own elite. He doesn't know who's who. Um, they're clearly, you know, the way the Russian elite is structured, there are these clans, you know, these different interest groups uh, who are in constant conflict with one another. And, you know, maybe he plays them off against one another, or maybe he thinks that's what he's doing, but it's also possible that he doesn't always understand the, the correlation of forces. Yeah. So in the beginning of the week, I talked to Charles Kupchan, and he said he was somewhat surprised that, or Prigozhin was surprised that he didn't have a bunch of followers behind him. Uh, as Kupchan read it, and it was preliminary, he thought maybe Prigozhin assumed that once he was getting closer and closer to Moscow, uh, other forces would join. But I've heard you say something of the opposite, that he was cheered and that is surprising. He has more support than maybe uh, the Putin or the Russian military would think. We're about a week after this all happened. What new insights do you have explaining Prigozhin's motivations? So I think it is pretty clear that he thought um, not so much that there would be popular support for what he was doing, but he thought he expected some concrete military support. And there have been rumors over the last few days of particular generals who were arrested who may have been somehow in cahoots with him, or he may have, he may, he, he certainly seems to not have expected that uh, the city of Moscow would defend itself against him. He, he appeared to be expecting to walk in or expecting to have some contact or some, some, some way in. Uh, so it's 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 very it's it's clear that he he had a, he had a broader plan and that the plan didn't work. Yeah. Uh, at the same time, uh, as I as I wrote uh, last weekend, um, one of the interesting things that happened was that when his men came into Rostov, which is which is a which is a big city and it's also the city, um, it's a it's a it's a big city very close to the Ukrainian border and it's also the city from which the war is being run. So it's the capital of the Southern Military District. A lot of the generals are there. A lot of the um, weapons are coming out of there. 
Um, and he he walked into the city of Rostov. He walked into the headquarters, military headquarters. He sat down with the generals. They they were chatting with him on a in a kind of courtyard, and he made a video of that. Um, and people in did. Rostov kind of flocked over to see what was happening. They heard it was the Wagner Group, and they started chatting with them and taking selfies. And they brought them, you know. Bottles of water and yeah, candy. well, the Wagner so, Group has a great brand there. They won the Battle of Bakhmut. They they're badasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and so while there wasn't, while he didn't get the big military support that he seems to have been expecting, he did show that lots of Russians were fine with a brutal warlord coming into their city and taking it over, uh, and displacing whoever whoever is supposed to be in charge. And this I read, and I, I spoke actually yesterday to somebody who does a lot of polling in Russia. Um, this, this I read as a illustration of the depth of Russian apathy. Uh, you know, Putin over many years has, uh, the, the, the messages he sent to Russia have, been, have, to Russia have been contradictory. You know, one week we're doing this in Ukraine, the next week we're doing that. Um, the explanations offered are you know, sometimes make no sense. Um, the, the propaganda is sometimes very harsh. You know, they talk about nuking the West, and then the week later they talk about the West nuking us. And one of the things that the conf the, the confusion, the so-called fire hose of falsehoods has created, is people have the sense of they don't really know what's going on. They don't have any right. interest in being involved in politics. And while that's useful for Putin because it means they don't protest, it also means that if somebody else takes over, they don't really mind. Uh, yeah. And that was that was really on display in Rostov on 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 Sunday, and and polling that shows this kind of apathy would um, backs that up. Yeah, as uh, to quote the title of that book about the effects of Russian propaganda, nothing is true and everything is possible. We can add an apathy is a logical defense mechanism. Uh, yes. If you're being given totally weird messages all the time that make no sense and you're being told contradictory things and none of it has any relation to your own reality, then after a while you retreat and you say, right, I can't possibly ever know what's going on. And because right. I don't know what's going on, I can't do anything about it. Okay. Last question. I, and we started off by saying you're not a seer. You're here to describe situations. Yet, what are the chances expressed however you would like that in two years, Putin is in charge of Russia and Prigozhin is alive. I, I, I wouldn't want to be Prigozhin's life insurer. Um, and I wouldn't want to be somebody who is dependent on Putin for my life either um, at, at, at this stage. Um, having said which, um, Stalin died in his sleep and lived, you know, happily ever after. Ann Applebaum is a staff writer for The Atlantic, author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning Gulag, A History. Her latest book is Twilight of Democracy, The Seductive Lore of Authoritarianism. And thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel, specifically, it's been three weeks since the last time we did this, thus making it an Antwentig. We listen to your complaints, your suggestions, your crise de corps, 
believe that's the correct plural. I'll get to some French in a second. And there was a show which marked the death of Silvio Berlusconi. We titled it Silvio Berlusconi, Hunga, Hunga Around for 86 Years. So, of course, someone complained, but I do so love you, the listeners, because the complaint wasn't my. That was so insensitive. It was, wouldn't Hunga, Hunga Around be the better pun? It would, except in writing, maybe Hunga, Hunga around looks better i don't know but tweeter nate goat turkey guitar i'm just going by the emojis in your name thank you you're right hunga 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 around will be good now on to the french adam bull writes in that i pronounced fin de cicle wrong because that's not how you pronounce it you pronounce it something like fin de cicle i thought the cicle would be wrong i might be wrong about that too but the finda is a fonda who knew Adam Bull writes, I was wondering if there was some kind of principle to mispronounce French phrases by American broadcasters. Yes, the principle is we don't speak French, or at least I don't. And when I try, I mangle it, but I'm not going to stop. It gives me such joie de vivre. A lot of people wrote in about this point. I was doing an analysis about a wrong statistic, an incorrect statistic, if you Google uh, frequency of rape fraternity, you will find that the number one result is uh, an article from 2014 by The Guardian by Jessica Valenti, headline, Frat Brothers Rape 300% More. And I spent a lot of time uh, in the article. It says it links to studies that show that frat brothers rape three times as much as the non-fratted among them. And if you heard that spiel, you heard me sort of dissembling means lying, disassembling that statistic. However, I should have concentrated more of the people wrote in are right, but that headline is wrong. 300% more is four times the rate, right? 100% more is double the rate. 200 triple, 300% more would be four times the rate. The Guardian itself gets it wrong in the headline, but the thing it gets wrong is the stat that's wrong. So I suppose I would have done well to say they can't even correctly incorrectly state the statistic. But thank you, John Heffernan and others for pointing it out. Francis Suyak writes in to say that um, your mocking could be and usually is better. Okay, I'm open. Once he compliments my mocking, but say my mocking wasn't on point on this specific point, I'll listen. And it's when I mocked some of the cable networks. Well, you know which two of the cable networks for glorying in their decision not to run Trump's speech after he was indicted federally. And I said that that's a fine judgment call. It's just how much how much prancing about, how far down the back does one have to pat with how many hands before one is just grabbing one's posterior. So I told Francis, sometimes we engage in colloquies, or I do, in uh, email form, And I said, it wasn't just that they didn't take the speech. It's how proud they were of not taking the speech. And by we, I thought CNN was fine. I thought Jake Tapper said, "Uh, we're not going to air someone who might lie to you. But Rachel Maddow, who talked for almost two minutes about how proud they were not to take the speech, said, we, you know, something along the lines are, we are engaged in protective measures benefiting you, the viewer. But of course, it's not literally you, the actual MSNBC viewer. You, the MSNBC viewer, is watching and know that Trump's a liar. We're doing it so that we could 
signal to you that we're worried about an imagined potential viewer who certainly has a brain not so muddled as your own. That person might be taken in as a charlatan. It was an excellent piece of branding where you're like you're watching MSNBC, where the network of people who aren't easily ensorcelled by charlatans. We're also the network that knows that there are many others out there of the ilk to be taken in and to be entranced by the verbal wizardry of this Donald Trump. But don't worry, we're all in this together. The 4,000 or 3,500 in the case of NBC, the 3,500 of us who are in the news division, who of course have every means to counter this the words of this speaker, but we just know that we are up against it and we can't possibly do that. He's so powerful, a thinker and speaker. So like I was saying, it's all about how over the top they went. Although I think I've probably talked for longer about Rachel Maddow's decision to talk for long about not taking Donald Trump's speech, which was the longest of them all. So now we get to The Lobstar. The Lobstar is awarded to the listener who writes in either uh, an email, the gist at mikepesca.com, or they might tweet at me, either at pescagist, at pescami, pescami for some reason is my Twitter handle. We have a very active Reddit page. I haven't ever given a lobstar to a commenter on my Substack, Pesca Profundities. But there were some pretty good comments. I was wondering, I did a fiction piece. Well, I don't, I don't want to tip it and tell you if it was fiction. It was set in 2034. Electric cars were everywhere. Global warming had basically been addressed and a dog was about to be elected president. People commented well. I'm not about to give the lobster, but I thank you. And if you want to subscribe to Pesca Profundities, uh, you can do so for free. You know how Substack works. But I got a really good Reddit post from Johns in Ake, J-O-N-S-I-N-A-C-H-E. And he noted that, well, let's back up a half step. Sometimes as a an interviewer, as the host of a show, you have to say the guest name a few times. You have to say the guest project's name a few times. And sometimes when the guest has a project that is eponymous, you can't avoid saying that word or name many, many times. Here is an example from Terry Gross. Keenan Keenan. Keenan 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 Keenan. That was of course an interview with Michael Beschloss. No, that was Keenan Thompson talking about his new show, which I forget the name of. So John writes in and says, I really like Mike's interview with Allison Bechtel. Now I have to say, going into this interview, how often do I say the Bechtel test? Do I bring up the Bechtel test? She brought up the Bechtel test. That was the word, that was the phrase I was most worried about. But the interview was about the audio version of her classic comic strip, Dykes to Watch Out For. And I said, you know, Allison allowed me to say the name of the comic series, but I'm not going to say it too often. And then, you know what John did? He counted. He investigated. He did the research. The results. In my interview with Alison Bechdel, where I said, oh, I'm not going to say the name of her work, Dykes to Watch Out For, too often. I said the title of the work eight times. In my interview with Michael Waldman, I said the title of his book three times. In my interview with Bruce Schoenfeld, I said the title of his book two times. And with Lisa Belkin, I said the title of her book three times. Now, one of the reasons might be 
that Michael Waldman wrote, the supermajority, how the Supreme Court divided America, the supermajority. So I wouldn't have to say to him, hey, so when you're considering the supermajority, we could just talk about the court. The work is a contemplation of an institution that has a name that I probably said a lot. When I talk about Lisa Belkin, about the genealogy of a murder, I would say, tell me about the murder. Tell me about the suspect. I wouldn't keep saying, tell me of the genealogy of the murder. Bruce Schoenfeld, who wrote about statistics and sports. So, Bruce, it really is a game of edges. In writing Game of Edges, did you edge out any other competitors who were thinking of hoarding in on your game, getting in on the edge? I can't excuse myself. I did say dykes to watch out for. Maybe one or two times too many. John, by the way, titles his Reddit post, Mike's to watch out for. It was all good. It was all very, very good. And John, John S. Inak, John Sinake, John Johnsonake, John, no matter how you say it and how often I say your name, the title now bestowed upon you is Lobstar of the Antoine Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist, and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening. Keenan.